So have you ever asked a stupid question? You don't have to answer that, sorry. Have you ever been charged for asking a stupid question? Yeah, some of you may have seen the, the news from Denver this week, from Tom's Diner. It seems that at Tom's Diner, you can get charged for a stupid question. Yep, it's right there on the menu, on the sides. It's right in between the extra dressing and the vegetable of the day. Now, the good thing is that it's the cheapest thing on the menu, well, almost the cheapest thing on the menu. You'll only pay 38 cents for asking a stupid question at Tom's Diner. That's all. Just going to put you out 38 cents. About 20 years ago, Tom Messina put that on the menu. He just thought to add a little fun to the workday, just something different to do. According to Chrissy Callahan of today.com, the wait staff is instructed not to actually charge someone for asking a stupid question, but to add that to the bill of a fun and lively table. Now, over the years, some people have gotten frustrated, just a few here or there, but for the most part, the report is that everybody likes a little lighthearted fun and they appreciate the humor. And there's also folks who have decided that they want to try to see if they can get charged for a stupid question. You know, they're going to they're give it a shot. So here are a couple of the questions that have been asked over the years. Are there any dues for the turkey club sandwich? Just two today, so it's okay. Does the ice have any water in it? Ah, because this water tastes more watery than water. Got to have some water in the ice. To keep things rolling in the menu, they decided to add some healthy options not long ago. And on the healthy options menu, you can find next to the cottage cheese and the soup of the day, skip your next meal or walk home. And thankfully, there is no charge for either one of those. those. Those are free. Those are free. You know, the world is a very dark and and difficult and dangerous and discouraging place. So kudos to Tom and his diner for adding a little light-hearted morsel of fun into a dark world. Good stuff. But then again, as the saying goes, there's no such thing as a stupid question, right? So putting a stupid question on the menu is is kind of stupid because there's no such thing as as a stupid question. So why is that said? Well, more than likely, it's because of what a question actually is. I came across a definition that words it like this. A question is an act that seeks information. An act, an action that seeks information. There are 150 strategic psalms in the Bible. They contain more than 40,000 words. That's a lot of information to seek. Today, we will begin a journey through the very first of those 150, Psalm 1. Psalm 1 has been described as the doorkeeper or a bouncer to the other 149 psalms. In other words, if you're going to get to the other psalms, you have to go through Psalm 1. The interesting thing about this one psalm, though, is how much information is packed in six sentences. In fact, the answers to life's deepest questions are found in this one psalm. The answers that you want the most in life are found in this one psalm. Here's just a a few things that we will find in terms of the answers to questions that this psalm has. Here's the questions. Who are you? 
Who are you? Psalm 1. Where can you find happiness? What road in life should you take? Who should be your friends? What is your destiny? Where can you find somebody to watch over you? And are you ready to die? All of that in in six sentences and and more than that, all in in this one psalm. It it sounds like it might be worth a look. So so we're going to give it a look. And let's just jump right in. Psalm 1, verse 1. The psalmist says, how blessed is the man. How blessed, how happy, how fortunate, how satisfied. How, how blessed and happy is the man or the woman or the boy or the girl or the teenager or the college student or the young adult or the young married adult or the single adult or the senior adult or any other human being, past, present, or future. How blessed and how happy. This is a crazy simple and crazy powerful way to start off this psalm, right? Do you want to be blessed? Do you want to be happy? Do you want to be satisfied? Do you want to have joy? Do you want to find meaning and and purpose in your life? If so, then you need to listen to whatever's after this phrase. How blessed is the man? So how can you be blessed? Well, some say you can be blessed by sowing a seed of faith, which oftentimes translates as Give your gift of $100 or more, and we will send you a a handkerchief in the mail that's been sprinkled with water from the Jordan River, the only river that makes anyone's baptism real. And, and, And you can do that, and your gift of $100 or more will be blessed tenfold, and God will give you a house in the gated community of Jabez. Someone might say, well, hang on, didn't Paul say the Lord will bless you? If you invest in the, in the work of God, if you give financially to the work of God, didn't, didn't Paul say the Lord will bless you? Yeah, he did. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 6. Now this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. If you are in an attitude of miserliness, then you have a a mantra, an ungodly, non-godly, non-Christian mantra that says, it's mine and you can't tell me what to do with it. If if that's the thought process, then you are someone living in the atmosphere of sowing sparingly. Eugene Peterson paraphrased it this way in the message, a stingy planter gets a stingy crop. So yes, it is correct to say, That if you want to be blessed, you should sow bountifully, you know. You should invest in the work of God. Yes, that is is a very true statement. The danger, though, is when we don't keep reading. This is what Paul says just a couple of sentences later in verse 11. I'm, I'm reading this from the King James. Being enriched in everything to all bountifulness. That's just a fun word to say. What does it mean? What does it mean to have bountifulness? It means to be generous. Paul says being enriched, being being given material things so that you can be generous. Sam Storm says this, the prosperity gospel says you should give in order to get and stops there. 
The Bible says you should give in order to get so you can give even more away. Does God want to financially bless you? Maybe. I don't know. Does God want you to be generous no matter how much money you have or don't have? Definitely. One day Jesus was at church. He was watching them pass the offering plates and he noticed that that the wealthy people were putting large sums of money in the plates, which, by the way, is, is not wrong, okay, just to be clear, you know, as long as you do it with an attitude of, of joy and, and humility. But then he also noticed that there was a widow that put in just two coins, and he, he pulled his disciples together for a, a real-time, real-life lesson. And this is what he said to them, Mark 12. Truly I say to you, this poor widow put in more than all the contributors to the treasury. For they all put in out of their surplus, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she owned, all she had to live on. Again, Eugene Peterson gives it this paraphrase. All the others gave what they'll never miss. She gave extravagantly what she couldn't afford. She gave her all. Does God want to financially bless you? Maybe, I don't know. But again, does God want you to be generous no matter how much money you have or don't have? Definitely. And is being blessed always just financial? Is being blessed always about money? No, not at all. So how can you be blessed? Listen to what the psalmist says next. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. How blessed and happy and fortunate and satisfied is the person that does not listen to the advice of the world. Now, what does that mean? Well, here's what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean don't ever take any advice from people who aren't Christians, okay? That's that's silly, all right? Because every week from doctors to mechanics to recipe bloggers, we take advice from people who may or may not be Christians, So this is not about taking advice from people who aren't Christians. This is completely different. It's not about strategic information for unique situations in life. This is about saying this, how happy and blessed and fortunate and satisfied is the person that does not live their daily life pressed down by advice from people who do not love God or his ways or even regard God. Practically speaking, think of it this way. Do what the meteorologist says, all right? Go get an umbrella. Go get a jacket. Whatever they say, just go do that. That's fine. But don't rearrange your day around Mother Nature or Mother Earth because that's just a, a mythic personification that was created to define nature way back in the Greco-Roman culture. Somebody might say, wasn't that what you Christians did? I mean, didn't y'all invent God? Isn't God a a mythic personification that kind of helps you guys understand nature and the meaning of life? C.S. Lewis said this, Nature never taught me that there exists a God of glory and of infinite majesty. I had to learn that in other ways. But nature gave the word glory a meaning for me. I still do not know where else I could have found one. 
I do not see how fear of God could ever have meant to me anything but the lowest prudential efforts to be safe if I had never seen certain ominous ravines and unapproachable cracks. And if nature had never awakened certain longings in me, huge areas of what I can now mean by love of God would never, so far as I can see, have existed. In other words, nature does not scream to us, hey, create something to explain all of this. No, nature screams to us, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Nature points us to the Creator and the Creator is not us. Thomas Aquinas said this, we find in nature things that are possible to be and not to be. That which does not exist only begins to exist by something already existing. Therefore, if at one time nothing was in existence, it would have been impossible for anything to have begun to exist. And thus even now nothing would be in existence, which is absurd. And then he said this, It is impossible to go on to infinity and necessary things which have their necessity caused by another. In other words, God was not invented so that we could have some kind of way to explain why things exist. God declared himself to be the only reasonable, logical reason first cause for why things do exist. Apostle Paul said it this way, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. So the psalmist is saying this blessed and happy and fortunate and satisfied is the person who is able to live in such a way that they are not constantly downloading the advice of a world who will not acknowledge the invisible attributes of creator God clearly seen in nature. It's almost as if he's saying, you know what, it's a crime against your own soul to deny the existence of God. So, so don't, don't buy into that type of criminal advice. Don't walk in it and don't plan your life around it. But how could that even happen? How in the world could we start being people who, who plan our life around advice that denies God? Now, I came across a list of, of five categories we can use for this, this type of counsel. The psalmist refers to him again as, as wicked people. So I'm just going to list them quickly, and they're pretty self-explanatory. Here, here's the first one. They deny the sufficiency of Scripture for dealing with the problems of the soul. So the psalmist is saying these, these wicked people, they deny the sufficiency of Scripture to solve the problems of a person's soul. Wicked people also elevate and revere the pride of man and diminish the glory 
of God. They, they put man first and most instead of God first and most. Wicked people deny or minimize the need for the cross of Christ by this, by asserting either the basic goodness of man, I'm okay, you're okay, everybody's okay, or by downplaying the need to be saved at all. Fourth, wicked people deny God's moral absolutes and substitute relative human goodness. How much human goodness have we read in the news this week? Is there a ton of human goodness going on in the world that you can build your life upon? And then fifth, wicked people focus on pleasing yourself rather than on pleasing God and serving others. And so the psalmist says, here's some advice, don't download that. Don't download advice like that and then run your daily life and your daily schedule on that type of counsel. Don't walk in that way. But that's not the only thing on the path to be blessed. Verse 1, how blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked nor stand in the path of sinners. Catch the vibe here? It's like you're, you know, power walking through the mall, you know, just walking, minding your own business, and all of a sudden, here comes somebody you know. You know them a little bit, you're not good friends with them, and y'all power walking together, and y'all go through the mall, and, and they're just downloading their philosophy of life, telling you everything they believe about everything going on in the media and in the world and religion and politics and everything else, and you're just walking, and you're nodding. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I see your point. I see your point. And then you stop walking and, and you walk by the Starbucks and you go in Starbucks. And you both get a latte and y'all go over to the stand-up bar where there's no stools and, and some of their friends are there and then all of a sudden you're standing around and the conversation just deepens. More of that life philosophy on and on and on. And you're nodding a lot more and going along a lot more. You're not just walking now, you're standing and you're in the conversation. Someone has said this about sin. The natural direction of sin is a sequential downward drag. It's, it's always pulling you in the direction you don't want to go. According to the 80s philosophers known as the fix, one thing leads to another. Over and over and over again. I had to take my parents to some of their doctor's appointments this week. And in one of those appointments, I'm sitting there in the exam room and the doctor's kind of going over some things and he made this comment. He said, you know, some of this plaque around the heart, it, you know, really it, it starts in us when, you know, we're in our 30s. And so I'm sitting there going, good night. At this point, I probably got gingivitis all over my heart. Man, it ain't nothing but plaque. I start getting a little nervous just listening to the conversation. But you know what? Sin's like that. That's what sin does. See, sin, it, it kind of starts small, but then it keeps building and keeps building and keeps building. It's not just walking around with sin. It's, it's standing in sin, and, and the plaque begins to build. And what the psalmist is saying is this, blessed and happy and fortunate and satisfied is the person that doesn't stand around the counsel and the advice and the ways of the world so much that it starts building up spiritual plaque around their spiritual heart. He says, blessed is the person that 
that doesn't have that kind of plaque in their soul. But walking and standing are not the only thing on the path to be blessed. Look, continuing in verse 1. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. You ain't walking anymore. You ain't at Starbucks. You in the food court. You sitting down. The whole crowd is sitting together. Y'all got plates of sushi, and man, y'all are diving in. All of that philosophy is just being poured out full on. And man, you're into it now. You ain't walking, you ain't standing, you're sitting, and you're soaking it all in. The language here in the original language is one of settling down in a dwelling place. You aren't just walking around sin. You aren't just standing in the presence of sin. You are living in sin, and you're okay. You're good with it. It it doesn't bother you at all. You're not walking with the wicked. You're not standing with the sinners. Now you're sitting down with the scoffers. What's a scoffer? A scoffer is someone who is antagonistic toward God. They are always pushing against God. They are the kind of person that criticizes Christians and they criticize the Bible. They don't think they need God and they think their real life experience or or their personal experiences or their business experiences is all the information and the opinions that they need and all that they have is a lot better than some old book written long ago. Scoffers may have grown up outside of the church, they may have grown up inside of the church, and they may still be in the church. A scoffer is someone who is always trying to make their personal opinion or their tradition, or their contemporary fad more important than God's Word. They don't say God's Word's not important, but their thing is always more important than what the Bible says and how the Bible leads. People that consistently scoff at the counsel and the advice of the Bible. And people that scoff always have a little group around them. They have people scoffing with them or they have people scoffing for them. And scoffers almost never will obey the Bible and go one-on-one with a person to to try to reconcile an opinion or a difference. They always want a crowd so they can always push their agenda a little bit in front of others. You will not be blessed if you sit in the food court or the breakfast joint or the bar or the hallway at church with scoffers. The psalmist says, yeah, don't go there. Don't go there. Scoffers are offended at the truth of God. They are offensive with their thoughts and their attitudes toward God and toward God's people. Thomas Brooks said this, always look upon wicked men under those names and notions which the Scripture describes them, such as... Hang on to your hat here. Lions for their fierceness, bears for their cruelty, dragons for their hideousness, dogs for their filthiness, wolves for their subtleness, scorpions, vipers, thorns, briars, thistles, brambles, stubble, dirt, chaff, dust, dross, smoke, scum. Yeah, don't sit down with scoffers, all right? 
doesn't take long to pull those words together. And listen again to the progressions in this verse. Walk, stand, sit. Wicked, sinner, scoffer. Counsel, path, seat. That's what sin does. It drags you down sequentially. And so if you want to be blessed, then stay away from those progressions. Steer clear of those progressions. And how can we get our, our minds in that gear? I mean, that's easier said than done. How do we get our minds in a gear that says, all right, man, this, this, this first verse has kind of got something there, you know? I got to watch how I walk and stand and sit. So how, how do we get there? Let me just give you two kind of practical ways of, of thinking about this. Hopefully they'll be helpful. The first is one I came across this week, which is just great. You know, a submarine when it is put in the water, it lives in the water. It it maneuvers in the water. But what makes a submarine a submarine is that the water doesn't get in the submarine. As Christians, we live in this world, and we maneuver in this world. But what makes a Christian a Christian is that the wicked, sinful, scoffing advice of the world is not supposed to get in. It's not supposed to become the habits of our life. Second practical help comes from possibly the the hardest moment of one man's life. The most desperate, depressing, difficult moment of this man's life. His name was John. He was a tremendously successful public relations director. His marketing numbers were off the chart. He had significant brand name recognition in a number of countries. And then one day, everything came crashing down, and he found himself on the wrong side of a prison door. And he was so discouraged, he was so depressed, he was so desperate that he sent some of his friends to the boss just to see if the boss could do anything to help. And this is the message that John the Baptist sent Jesus. Are you the expected one? Or do we look for someone else? Hey, Jesus, I I sowed my seed of faith. And now I'm in prison. I ain't happy. I ain't blessed. I ain't fortunate. I ain't satisfied. What gives? Ever felt that way? Feel that way this morning? Listen to how Jesus responds. This is great. Luke 7, 22. Go and report to John what you have seen and heard. Ain't no fairy tale. This isn't a legend. It's documented by Christian and Roman and Greek historians. These, these things are, are out there. You have to work hard to not have faith in them. You have to have greater faith to not believe the history of the things that Jesus did. Jesus said, go and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight. The lame walk. The lepers are cleansed. And the deaf hear. The dead are raised up. The poor have the gospel preached to them. 
Jesus doesn't just hit it out of the ballpark. He, he calls the spot before he hits it. He sends them home with a real message. In a moment of weakness, John's scoffing just a little bit. And Jesus sends them back. The question was, hey, is there somebody else? Or are you really the guy or should we be looking for someone else? And can you imagine these guys walking in the cell? I mean, John never got a word in. John, 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 John. He's the one. John, really, we're going to go over this again. Listen to these stories. We saw these things with our own eyes. John, he's really the one. But Jesus sent him back with something else. Luke 7, 23. Blessed is he who does not take offense at me. Blessed and happy and satisfied is the person that doesn't scoff and is not offended when Jesus doesn't work the situation out the way you think it should be worked out. Blessed and happy and satisfied is the one who doesn't scoff and is not offended when the Jesus of the Bible doesn't match up with your version of Jesus. John was doubting, but he wasn't denying. How do we know that? Because he turned to Jesus. He was doubting. He was struggling. He was maybe scoffing a little bit, but he knew where to turn to be blessed. He knew where he should go. He knew where he should turn to find happiness and satisfaction. Not the kind of happiness that lasts for a Sunday. Not the kind of happiness that lasts for the weekend or a holiday or a wedding day or an anniversary. Not the kind of happiness that lasts for a retirement party or a tailgating party. But the kind of happiness and the kind of satisfaction that will hug your soul after you die. And the kind of happiness and satisfaction that will hug your soul right now. A few years ago, I was reading one of my morning devotional readings, and it had the following title, Jesus is what you are looking for. John didn't ask a stupid question. He asked the right question. Jesus, are you the one? Whatever blessing you're looking for in life, Jesus is what you're looking for. Whatever blessing you're hoping for in life, Jesus is what you are looking for. Jesus really is the one. He really is the one. 